Welcome to the Sustainable Century by Designer Disaster, where we take an honest look at emerging trends in sustainable economic development and why some companies will thrive and others won't, both now and in the decades to come. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Glad you could join us to share and debate ideas and experiences about how consumers, stakeholders, companies, and governments are helping, or maybe not, to create a more sustainable world. In this episode, we talk with Heather White. Heather is an inspirational sustainability leader. She was founder and head of Verite, which is an NGO dedicated to making corporate supply chains meet international sustainability standards. More recently, she undertook a fellowship at Harvard University researching supply chains and sustainability issues in China. Heather has advised global brands on supply chains, social monitoring, and training issues, and she was named one of the Scientific American 50 by Scientific American Magazine. She was also a recipient of the very cool Social Capitalist Award from Fast Company. More recently, Heather has applied her wisdom, her experience, and her compassion as a filmmaker to produce Who Pays the Price? The Human Cost of Electronics. Heather, welcome. Great chat with you today, Mark. Heather, there are so many things I want to ask you about social entrepreneurialism, about supply chains. But why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about your movie, uh, Who Pays the Price, The Human Costs of Electronics, as, as a context for that discussion. Sure. Well, just as a way of background, I headed over to China in January of 2013, not sure what I was going to find, but I was uh, wrapping up a fellowship that I had at Harvard, the Safra Center for Ethics, where I was looking at challenges in supply chain monitoring and issues around corruption and conflicts of interest, uh, which have been emerging and becoming an increased problem. And my colleague and I, within the first week, discovered that there are hospital wards filled with teenagers and young people in their early 20s who have been poisoned by benzene and N-hexane and making our cell phones and our electronic devices, the things that we're literally using every day and are by our side 24-7. So with that um, discovery, we made the commitment to make a documentary film about it. Originally, I was going to be researching an article that actually came out in Wired magazine in April of this year, but um, we felt that the issue was really compelling and that companies needed to be made aware of and some pressure brought to bear on them to change their practices immediately. So we decided we'd make a film and it would launch with a 10-minute trailer that we put up on YouTube in 2014, which now has 1.2 million views, and there's been over 400 news articles, and we've got the documentary film that we're hoping to finish up this fall. Well, well, in your film trailer, uh, there's some deeply, I'm going to use the word, upsetting personal stories, and invoking some very powerful images, heart-grabbing, really. Um, But what got me besides that uh, was how many of these young workers that were so tragically affected by making our cell phones really just left their rural homes to support their families? Uh, It strikes me like the story of millions of immigrants uh, coming to America. Uh, 
and you had a chance to talk to lots of these people. Is that it, you would think people could connect with that kind of story here in America, consumers? I think they will because often I believe that we as consumers have no idea of who's on the other side of our cell phone or our iPad and we can't imagine who might have made it and we see these photographs or we might see some footage on the assembly lines in China but we don't really know who they are and we don't have any clue about their stories and where they came from so we've really made an effort with this film to go very deeply into the personal lives and hear the stories of these kids who basically wanted to help their families, wanted to have some adventure, wanted to check out what life in the city was like. Like a lot of teenagers today, they're bored in the countryside. (laughs) They want to go to a place that's more exciting. They want to own a cell phone themselves. The dream for a lot of them is to actually have a smartphone. I can't tell you how many teenagers we talked to said that they would love to have an iPhone, but they couldn't afford it. And the irony is that some of them had actually been producing in a factory that was making components for iPhones when they got poisoned and then have spent the last two years in the hospital struggling for compensation and fighting their factory to get their medical bills paid. Well, that, those, yeah, those are uh, tragic stories. And, and it seems like the struggle for them to get their voice heard is incredibly uh, difficult um, in China, particularly. But I mean, in the trailer, it talks about, and in the article, you you talk about uh, most of these companies are, are Western companies uh, or partly owned by Western companies. I mean, where does the responsibility lie in terms of helping these uh, young workers? For me, I believe the responsibility lies with the brands. Uh, so Americans were not going to be able to have much impact in trying to reform the Chinese government or persuade them to be more proactive in enforcing the laws that they have on the books. But all of the the U.S. companies and the European companies, and we're talking about Apple as being the largest of all of them, and they are a U.S. company. You know, Samsung is the largest in the world, but they're producing more than 40% of their product line in Korea, which is a democracy where you can challenge a company, you can file a lawsuit, NGOs are allowed trade unions are allowed in the country. It's a completely different environment. China is a dictatorship. These kids have no access to resources and support for the most part. NGOs have been trashed and shut down by the government in a five-year crackdown that the Chinese have been waging against organizations. Specifically, they're helping workers and migrant workers in particular. So these kids really don't have much in terms of sources of support and I think that as consumers there's a role for us to play here because we can tell these companies they're supposed to be in compliance with the local laws of the countries where they're operating. They're not supposed to be allowing their suppliers to be poisoning workers and they're not supposed to be looking the other way and saying that they don't know anything about the problem. It's a problem that was very easy for us to discover. It literally took us one week to realize (laughs) that there are thousands of kids in hospitals around the country so dealing with these issues. That, that's an incredible price to pay, as, as your film points out. But, you know, one thing that has always uh, vexed, uh, I think, a lot of what we might call sustainability or responsibly-minded consumers is there's absolutely no information available. 
about uh, about whether or not a product is being uh, produced uh, in a in a responsible manner. I mean, even even people who see your movie when they go to buy their phone, they have no way of telling uh, which one is better than the other, or is there something I don't know about? No, you're absolutely right, and that's one of the big challenges. One is that this whole area of CSR and self-reporting only extends as far as the corporations want it to extend. So they're not under any obligation legally to provide details about what's happening in their supply chains. The case against Shell Oil in Nigeria that was recently won by uh, farmers who brought their case forward in Amsterdam was the very first time that a major corporation actually lost on any um, counts being brought forward regarding environmental damage or supply chain violations anywhere in the world. So this is the first time a precedent has been set, and it's favored the corporations hugely because they're not actually obligated. So they report out what they want to. There's no verification legally. There's no claims for suits. Um, Several organizations in the U.S. have actually tried to sue some major corporations on issues related to violations, human rights issues in their supply chains primarily, and they've lost every time. The cases have been thrown out of court, and so it's really a huge challenge for consumers and people who care, shareholders and others, to get this information because, of course, it costs a lot of money for NGOs and activists to get the information out and get a campaign started, and then if there's no legal liability, um, it makes it very difficult, really, to hold the companies to account, other than the court of public opinion, which does make a difference. Apple did agree to ban benzene and N-hexane as a result of the trailer. Well, that, that, that is a great win. I wanted to ask you uh, uh, if you'd seen the recent announcement by Walmart, uh, who says they are now going to charge all their suppliers for stocking and warehousing products. Uh, now, this, you know, if, you, if you've been in, in that particular business before, you know that that's a fairly standard stocking charge. It's either formal or informal, as the case may be. But when you think about supply chains, uh, how is that going to affect? Uh, how is that going to affect suppliers in China or anywhere else? I mean, and I want to I want to preface your uh, response by saying Walmart justifies the change uh, by aiming to uh, serve shared customers and achieve the low prices that the customers expect and deserve. Yes, well, on the issue of monitoring and oversight of suppliers on dimensions of human rights, anti-sweatshop concerns, that sort of thing, Walmart and others have been charging suppliers for the audits and for the work that needs to be done to verify the standards for the last several years, in fact. So it's just going to put even more pressure on the suppliers because retailers decided about eight years ago that they didn't want to have to absorb the cost for social audits and monitoring their supplier networks with respect to working conditions. And so they started charging back the suppliers or telling the suppliers that they're obligated to arrange the audits themselves and then just need to submit a report or some type of a certification from an approved monitor 
that the factory has met their standards. And so this whole thing has actually been going on for quite a few years, and it just means that the suppliers are going to get even further squeezed, and then they pass along the pressure onto their variable labor labor costs, which is, you know, the workers who but the, don't get paid, you know, get cheated on their benefits and their overtime pay, and it's... It's not getting solved in terms of this issue around working conditions for the major corporations. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I have been periodically um, encouraged by initiatives like the Global Reporting Initiative, for example, which, you know, uh, forces uh, larger companies that do those formats, uh, formatted reports, uh, to be more transparent about what's going on and the new G4 focusing on supply chains. Uh, are we wrong to be encouraged by that? No, I think that's great. I served on the Global Reporting Initiative Stakeholder Council for six years, recently cycled off, and also on the U.S. board of the GRI because I believe very strongly that public reporting is extremely important and it's key to being able to expect companies to, over time, become more transparent on supply chain issues and things relating to labor rights and human rights, because it's very easy to cheat on those kinds of reports. But if the company institutionalizes practices internally, whereby they're reporting, where they've got the compliance department involved, they've got an entire team that's focusing on these issues and encouragement from the senior executives to report on this stuff, we actually can see some improvements, and they're more responsive when concerns are brought to them from other stakeholders or from the media or from activists. They feel that because they've made this commitment to GRI reporting that they're being held to a higher standard, and they've decided they want to be held to those standards. Yeah. I, again, I'm, I'm periodically encouraged. Uh, let's take the climate uh, recent climate change announcements, you know, with the encyclical from the Pope and the, and the G7 making the commitment to decarbonize the economy by uh, uh, the end of this century. Uh, it it kind of makes me hopeful. But on the other hand, you know, when I see stories uh, that like the ones coming out of your movie, I go, my goodness, uh, the pressure for lower prices is just going to make this uh, these stories multiply the world round. Uh, how, I mean, what is our best chance of uh, uh, dealing with these kinds of issues, Heather? I mean, really, is it policy? Is it consumer? Is it, how do we do this? Well, I just saw a film this past week, which it's managed to wrap up all of these issues, focusing on climate change in particular, in a very interesting bow and in saying that human beings need to stop eating meat and stop supporting the cruelty-based, global, corporatized meat industry and become vegetarian. <laughs> and, he lays, and he lays it out quite successfully yes. in terms of all of the impacts on the environment and on human health and on what we're looking at in terms of the lack of sustainability on so many different levels tying it back to the meat industry. Mm. So uh, I give that film a big thumbs up. It's made by... <laughs> documentary filmmaker named Gary Mill. Um, but in terms of these particular challenges in the area that I've been working in for the last 20 years, I have to say that we've taken some huge 
steps backward over the last five years. And hopefully we've taken a couple of steps forward as a result. But the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh that had been preceded by a huge factory fire at a factory called Tazreen, and then Ali Enterprises um, in Pakistan, which was an equally devastating fire, all within the space of about 18 months, um, really sent a huge wake-up call to the whole social compliance industry and CSR professionals who claim to be working on these issues within the confines of the corporations um, that are sourcing from those countries, because it sent a very serious wake-up call that compliance efforts and codes of conduct have, have really been a, quite a big failure um, in several ways and that a reassessment is well, completely needed. Well, you know that the that the in the Rana Plaza, as you know, I, I believe it was the Rana Plaza, it might have been the, the, the fire in, in Bangladesh, that um, it had been two weeks prior certified by, yes. the, by a, a global certification uh, organization, which included many large brands. I mean, talk about conflicts of interest. But I, I, I agree with you about many of these things. But I want to come to that meat issue. <laughs> but, um, in addition to making me feel a little guilty once in a while, um, it, what what has always stumped me, Heather, is that uh, there seems to be so many people working on so many important issues. Uh, but there seems to be no uh, silver bullet that we, we actually pretty much need to find fairly soon. Uh, do you think meets it or, or where should we put our priorities? I mean, because the stories that you, you tell in, in, in your film will surely lead to millions of people wanting to help there. But is that the answer? Well, I think that in terms of my film, I only wanted to make one specific ask of the cell phone companies, which is just eliminate benzene and n-hexane and then hopefully make a commitment to produce these devices without life-threatening chemicals because it's completely necessary and easy in many cases for them to substitute less damaging materials. But of course it costs a little bit more money. But at the same time, when Apple announced it was banning benzene last August, they didn't announce a price increase hmm. because we're talking about less than pennies per phone. Exactly. I, you know, I did a calculation, Heather, of what it would cost to bring all Bangladeshi textile factories up to Western code, and it works out to about three cents per item of clothing. Absolutely. It's, I'm, it's, sure that's, I'm sure that's right. I think we need, you know, it, my, it's my own opinion that we really need a simple in-store uh, label that's standardized, easy to read. You can get more information maybe off your cell phone or whatever so that people can actually make the decision in the store. Then we can bypass all these lengthy and ridiculous uh, political uh, considerations that are you know, that wrap around every kind of important sustainability issue, particularly climate, for example, uh, that, that just stall the initiatives that I think pretty much everybody wants to see go forward, you know? It's true, but there's so many competing labels and competing initiatives, and then they get taken over by the companies themselves yeah. and greenwashed yeah. that we're in 15 years have not been able, not even in apparel where this issue originally started, have not been able to come up with one certification scheme 
that is industry-wide and that has the support of stakeholders, NGOs, trade unions, and consumers. So I think that, you know, that's, again, another another area of failure um, where some new ideas and some new partnerships uh, need to happen. Well, uh, you know, there's certainly the technology now and, and the social networks that could drive that. So I'm, I'm hopeful about that, you know, and I've seen some emerging social entrepreneurs, so to speak, uh, trying to address that. Uh, I think one of the things that slows us down is trying to get too much, too much consensus and trying to get it too right off the bat. Maybe we have to uh, have a few competitive efforts out there and, and maybe have some failures at the same time. Quick word about social entrepreneurs. You've kind of been one most of your life. Uh, looking forward, how important are they going to be in making the world uh, more sustainable? I think very important, and I'm so encouraged by the younger generation, especially of social entrepreneurs. I've moved to Manhattan recently, and so many times I overhear conversations in cafes and restaurants by these young millennials who are all working on apps to save the planet and crowdsourcing initiatives to increase not only transparency of corporations in some cases, but um, watchdog initiatives and public policy that's more inclusive and gets communities involved. There's this whole uh, move towards uh, making your own products, the maker movement, which I didn't know anything about oh, until about a couple of years yeah. ago. I just yeah. love it. Isn't I think it they're, yeah. I think they're doing a great job, yeah. and yeah. my kids are going into wonderful careers. They're um, friends and people that they're graduating with. None of them are, you know, choosing the types of planet-destroying careers that my generation yeah. um, went into, yes. and now look what we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, this is our generation. There's a lot of the responsibility and also the one previous to us. Yeah. One of the things I find so hopeful about the younger generation is they're interested in sharing. And I think that's the rising phoenix of sustainability, the, the sharing economy. Absolutely. Um, there's a move away from you know, what we've dealt with, probably both of us throughout much of our careers, which is the legal departments of companies that we may be doing some consulting work for that want to lock up and tie up the ability to share information, to collaborate, um, to even report out accurately and candidly um, some of the challenges they're dealing with because of the obsession with control over intellectual property rights. Right. I think that the move that the young people today are making away from that and um, what we're seeing on the internet, you know, in terms of all this great open source stuff is very encouraging and I applaud it. And I think yeah. that there's definitely a future for social entrepreneurship in the whole kind of small is beautiful mold yeah. and not trying to scale and build it to the point where you're going to sell out to a Coca-Cola or a Monsanto or a Nestle, etc. because that's not actually a success story, at least from what we've seen among these young entrepreneurs who build these great brands that then are getting taken over. The whole organics right. movement has been right. co-opted. And now we even have Whole Foods is being investigated for fraud. I just saw announced today. Oh, oh goodness. Um, so, <laughs> Well, Heather, I wanted to ask you one last question. Um, as a social entrepreneur yourself, 
what was the you know sort of the de- defining moment in your life let let led you to become well if I use the wrong word pardon me but the activist that you are the change maker the change agent that you are today. Um, well, I think it goes back to my being here in the Berkshires twenty years ago when I had a chance to spend a lot of time rollerblading on the back country roads here which are beautiful and you hardly ever see cars and to write in my journal for a week and really contemplate what I wanted to do um, to respond to the killing of a young activist from Pakistan who was murdered after he went back home having just received the Reebok Human Rights Award and he had been involved in the carpet industry where he'd been sold as a child to uh, a carpet manufacturer and had spent many years and had finally escaped. And as a result, Reebok heard about him and brought him to the U.S., gave him a great platform. And then when he went home, he was killed. And um, the NGO that rescued him said they were convinced that it was angry carpet industry owners who were upset that He'd embarrassed them on a global platform, such as the Human Rights Award. So I decided at that point, after having time to really contemplate what my move was going to be, that I was going to start Verite, which was a nonprofit organization that was going to start inspecting factories around the world. And we did work in over 60 countries a year while I was running Verite. Well, you've had uh, an amazing career, Heather, and uh, might I say inspirational to, to many, including myself. And um, I wish you the, the greatest success in, with your film, Who Pays the Price, the, the Human Cost of Electronics. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And we have a mutual admiration society going forward. <laughs> I think you're continuing to do great work and have great impact. Thank you very much, Heather. And we'll talk again sometime soon. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. That was Heather White, producer of Who Pays the Price? The Human Cost of Electronics. I urge you to check out the trailer for this important documentary. You can do that on YouTube or www.whopaysfilm, that's all one word, whopaysfilm-org.candiumandcotton.com or simply go to Indiegogo and support the film with a donation. Thanks for listening to The Sustainable Century. Hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard, you can always go to uh, www.sustainablecentury.net. Check out our blog. See the full list of a Sustainable Century podcasts. Or if you'd rather listen to the blog, you can always download a six-pack of Sustainable Century spoken blog postings. Where yours truly reads six posts with only the occasional editorial. Remember to press like in all the appropriate places. Leave a comment, stir up a fuss, spread the word, tweet your thoughts out to the world. Again, you can find all this at www.sustainablecentury.net or via www.esglobal.com. That's where I work. Let's keep the conversation going.